This is a podcast from Radio Molly, a digital radio station for Irish literature, broadcasting from Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, located on Dublin's St. Stephen's Green. For more from Radio Molly and the Museum of Literature Ireland, visit radio.molly.ie. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that buying Molly membership for yourself, your family or a friend is the best way to support the museum and its programming. Head over to molly.ie forward slash membership to sign up. Thank you for listening. UCD has a particular focus on equality, diversity and inclusion. So we've come together with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, in this project called Past, Present and Pride. It's a, it's a way for us to, to work with, to interview, to hear the voices of LGBTI writers, um, Irish writers and perhaps some international writers, a way to give voice to, to the LGBTI experience, to advance um, issues of, of diversity, inclusion and equality. I'm Paul Dalton. I'm a clinical psychologist um, I work in UCD and I also work in, in St. Vincent's uh, Hospital in Allen Park. Our first guest, I'm, I'm delighted to say, is Emma Donoghue, a writer, 11 novels, like five collections of short stories, numerous plays, very well known for the book Room and the film adaptation. Emma is a graduate of UCD and her first novel, Stirfly, was set in UCD uh, in the 1980s, is a lesbian coming-of-age novel. Emma, Emma Donoghue, a very warm uh, virtual welcome to Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, um, and to Newman House, the, um, the foundation uh, house, the foundation of UCD, your, your alma mater. We are um, definitely complying with social distancing. Uh, you're, you're in Canada. Thousands of, thousands thousands. of, of kilometres apart we are. <laughs> yes, I'm in London, Ontario, where, where I live. With, with, um, with but um, uh-huh. I'm feeling at home already, Paul, because you pronounced my surname right. Dunne- you know, it's not Dunne- something Dunne- I'm fussy about, given that I live in Canada, but uh, hearing Donahue, I just think, oh, OK, uh, I'm, with, I'm with those who understand me. <laughs> So, so, so you're over there, and I, and 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 I'm here. Um, so, I mean, just jumping, jumping right in. Your your first book, uh, and your most recent book, uh, soon to be soon to be with us, uh, are both set in Dublin. Um, so, I was thinking, uh, to date, your writing is almost bookended uh, by by Dublin. Your first book and and your most recent. And your, your first book, firstly, you, you, you've published, I think, um, 11 novels and five collections of, of short stories. Your, your first book uh, in 1994, Stir Fry, um, set in UCD, um, it opens with the words, uh, two women seek flatmate, no bigots. And the central character, um, Mariah, um, her, her, her life, her, her coming of age unfolds. It's described as many things, but, but as a lesbian novel. Is, is that an accurate description? Yeah, um, you can 
you can draw a line of uh, lesbian literary tradition either through the writers of it, as in whatever we lesbians write <coughs> is lesbian fiction, or through themes. So of course, that's two different ways of drawing the line. A stir fry works for, under both headings, I would say. And you know, if ever I'm tempted to complain about being pigeonholed at any point in my career, um, I remember that in fact it got me a lot of extra publicity and a lot of extra attention when I published Stir Fry in 1994. So um, there's, you know, there are, there are pros and cons mm. to having a label attached to you as a mm. writer, mm. but I certainly can't complain about the lesbian one because mm. I think whatever helps a writer stand out from the crowd at all, especially when they're first publishing, is a good thing. And also, I've never found it to be a label that, that um, you know, sits heavily on my shoulders because I think my readers have been very willing to allow my imagination to wander off wherever, wherever it may find itself. And, and Emma, was that the case in, even in 1994? It was, oddly enough. Right. Um, I found, for instance, my, my lesbian fan base, they were so grateful. Um, Stir Fry and then my second novel, Hood, both set in Dublin, both lesbian novels. And they were they were thrilled by that, but nobody ever said to me, "Oh, why have you know mm. um, my my first sort of big selling novel in 2000, uh, Slamerica, didn't have a lesbian theme?" And I've never found my my um, my queer fan base to be in any way resentful of that. Sometimes they might poignantly say, "When's your next lesbian themed fiction?" <laughs> but um, they 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 don't they don't keep um, their writers on a tight leash, put right, it that way. Right. I, think, I think what um, lesbian and gay readers appreciate is, is the freedom of the imagination. Mm. You know? So I've always found them appreciative, but in no way um, strict. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. No way confining. You, I mean, your, your latest novel, due to be published in a, in a few days, I, I, I think, it the, comes out in um, about around the 20th of July, ah, yeah, um, right. The Pull of the Stars, it's set in a Dublin hospital. Tell us, of, tell, us of, tell us about it. Well, I wanted to write about the flu pandemic of um, 1918. Um, I got this, you know, I, I started writing this book in 2018, thinking of the flu pandemic as purely historical, having no idea that it would come out uh, in the middle of a new pandemic. Um, and I could have said it anywhere in the world, Paul, you know yourself, you know, that that pandemic was devastating, perhaps even worse in Asia than Europe. But there's a lot to be said for knowing your territory and, mm. and, and especially in terms of idiom. So I thought I'll set it in Ireland, I'll set it in a hospital because I'm very interested in, in what the weird and crazy atmosphere um, there must have been in, in big um, institutions where were trying to, keep, trying to keep people alive and had all these different factors to juggle. Um, and so I thought I'd set in Dublin, of course, uh, Dublin in 1918 was a fascinating time and place anyway mm, because mm. the country was going through such political upheavals in a, just a couple of years. So I thought it would be a wonderful kind of um, nexus of, of political and health crises mm. was to set it right there. Yeah, mm. But I went for a fictional hospital because I didn't want any one hospital to, to um, you know, get up in arms about was I misrepresenting their practices? Yeah, you know? yeah. And um, some of these things are very controversial. Uh, medical practices of the day and whether they were, you know, acceptable for the time or were they always um, barbaric. So, um, so I decided a, a fictional Dublin hospital would give me that that right balance between um, sort of authenticity and um, freedom to make it up. And Emma, it's a maternity hospital. I'm right. So this is about... It's a maternity uh, yeah, ward a in ward. a general hospital. Okay. Yeah. okay. And one of the first facts that grabbed me about the 1918 pandemic was that um, the, uh, 
a group who got the flu in, in extraordinary numbers and who suffered a lot from it were pregnant women, women in late pregnancy and for a few weeks after birth even. So birth and, and the, the great flu, the, the Spanish flu as some called it, um, was a terrible kind of, um, you know, not a comorbidities you might say. Um, so I thought it would be really interesting to set a novel among women who had the flu and were about to give birth because mm. those two health crises have very different storylines and very different possible outcomes. So I thought mm. it would make it more interesting than just pure flu. Um, and it also allowed me to focus the novel so much on, on women. You know, it creates yeah. this tiny little sort of bubble in which women are intensely suffering and working together and looked after by women nurses and even a woman doctor. So it, it gave me a weird opportunity to make a kind of yeah. little all-woman bubble right yeah. in the middle of the more familiar sort of men's territory of, of war, yeah. of, of World War One and of the Irish Revolutionary Struggle. Kathleen Lynn, you, is, isn't that right? Um, we're, we're yeah, I was, I was going to mm -hmm. use a fictional doctor, but then when I was you know, researching doctors in 1918 in Dublin, there was Kathleen Lynn, and she's such a fascinating yeah. figure because she, was, she, had, she had fingers in so many pies. She was so committed to the women's struggle, the labor struggle, and then as a result of those, the Irish Revolutionary struggle, and she was busy running around Dublin, running a, flu, a free flu clinic, um, her diaries are very vivid on the sheer hectic um, urgency of, of trying to figure out how to keep people alive during the flu. Um, and she was living in a relationship with a woman. I mean, she was a fascinating figure. Um, and um, I just thought she, she, she was too good to leave out of the book. So she's my one real character. Yeah. Um, and the novel is narrated by a, a fictional nurse called Julia Power. And there's also a third key character who's a, a volunteer helper. Because I wanted to show that whole span, that whole range of, of people in healthcare from, you know, the lowly cleaners who, as we know, are, are at just as much risk in, in crisis or pandemic situations, and then the, the high status doctors as well. Yeah, the, the, Emma, what we've become very familiar with, the, the frontline workers um, in, in this pandemic, I mean, it, 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 must be, it must be strange, unusual for you to have done all of this research, to have this, this book out into the world about a pandemic, in a pandemic. I mean, extraordinary. I've never had a novel become suddenly timely in this way. It feels very strange, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, when you write historical fiction, you're always hoping it'll be relevant to today. You know, of course, you know, when I was writing the novel, the things I had to say about, for instance, the way um, there's a moment in the book when when the nurse, uh, Nurse Julia says to Dr. Lynn, like, I, I try, I don't have time for politics. I try and stay out of politics. And Dr. Lynn says, everything's political. So, you know, if you care about your patients and if you start to see that the poor ones are dying in greater numbers, or if you start to see that the women who have 12 children are more likely to drop dead, you know, you can't help but start to analyze these things yeah. in terms of society's choices, where we spend the money and social justice. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I expected it to be to have relevant themes for today, but I didn't expect yeah. it to be, you know, disturbingly like uh, the issues of um, today. You yeah. know, do you wear masks? How often do you wash your hands? Mm. You know, what are the known knowns of mm. contagion and what are the, the still unknown knowns? Mm. And that atmosphere of, of dread and panic yeah. and, and busyness, you know, having to keep on working even in situations where you're, yeah. you know, in the back of your mind, fear is going tick, tick, tick. Where, yeah, where, where people are, are putting their lives at risk to care for other people that we've seen across the globe and, and, and still. And, and I think uh, what really strikes me is the, the, the light that a pandemic in, in 1918 and now throws on inequality. 
Oh, it's like a sort of an x-ray for a society, isn't it? Yeah. It's, you know, I've seen a map of, say, Toronto near where I live and, and the, 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 the areas with immigrants, the areas yeah. with people of color, the areas with poorer people, that's where it's hitting. So, yeah. you know, to describe an illness merely spreading through a city like some wave, um, that's very naive. It, yeah. it turns out that it, it attaches itself to to poverty yeah. um, in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And I think, again, the, the recent Black Lives Matter protests, yeah. they're making people more aware than ever that it's not just yeah. accident if, if people die. You yeah. know, in a way, we, we make decisions early on in life right. about who's going to live or die. We do. Um, so health has never been more political yeah. than right now, I think. Yeah. And, and Emma said very recently, you know, that um, yeah, we may be in the same storm, but we're sure not in the same boat. You know, that's well put, Paul. Yeah, 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 really, yeah that's really so true. Not. And of course, you know, I've had a very easy pandemic. I'm a writer. My job uh, carries on very normally during shutdown. Yeah. I'm used to staying home. So it hasn't even been a shock to me. Yeah. And yet I've yeah. been so aware there's been this weird gap between the comfort of my own daily life, working away on the next book and, and all the horrors of the news headlines. Yeah. So again, I, I feel this, this new kind of um, commitment and compulsion to kind of um, write fiction that is relevant to today. It doesn't always have to be explicitly about today, but you certainly can't ignore what's going on. Yeah. And you, you set this in, in an Irish context, um, a place that gives care. And our institutions in Ireland, as I think people know in many parts of the world, have very complex and sometimes very brutal pasts. So, so where we come, where vulnerable people come to be cared for, um, they've often been very brutalised. Did some of that influence your, your setting of the novel in Ireland? Definitely, I suppose. Um, I, I suppose I feel if you're being very critical of things, it's probably best to make them your things. You know? So when I was writing, say, The Wonder about a, a, a little child who's not eating in the 1850s, I said that in Ireland so that my critique of Irish Catholicism could be very much mm. you know, done on home territory rather yeah. than my pointing fingers at some other cultural tradition. And the same with The Pull of the Stars. Um, I suppose I show the hospital as, 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 as really a very good institution, very life-saving, but of course it was a different time, so they've got some practices which we would find bizarre. For instance, when a, when a stillbirth happens, they're, they're pretty much told, put that, put that stillbirth in a little cardboard box, package it up for disposal, and don't talk to the mother about it, yeah. don't show her, don't discuss it. Um, you know, we'd find that brutal. And so one of my technical problems with the book was um, not to have the readers judge my, my nurses and doctors and, and think that they're horrible or incompetent people. You know, they're working with the skills that they have. Um, but another institution that I included in the book um, as background is that I, I wanted to, to show somebody managing to sort of give out of a life that had had no privilege in it at all. So I decided to invent a volunteer who turns up and helps at the hospital who would be from um, a, a, an impoverished Irish background and would have experience of Irish residential institutions that was, was no good at all. And I was fascinated by the idea that, you know, despite all she's been through, and I drew very closely, by the way, on, on the, um, the Ryan report on, on yeah. Irish um, orphanages and, and yeah. residential institutions, um, so despite many horrors that she's been through and the fact that she's never had any status within Irish culture, this young woman still has a kind of natural generosity and energy and vitality. And one thing that struck me in, in the Ryan report was how many of the, of the people giving evidence said that they were made to feel useless or worthless. And they were always told, you know, you have to work hard to try and 
pay society back because you're, you've contributed nothing. So I was fascinated by the idea that a volunteer might actually find, you know, in grueling, um, grueling hospital conditions, she might still find it a thrilling few days in her life because she's feeling important for the first time. You know, she's feeling needed. Um, so, um, so yeah, so, so I, I have a very mixed sense, I suppose, about, about Irish institutions. So, you know, Emma, a little like, I was thinking, just like the volunteer, your volunteer in The Pull of the Stars, you know, when, when, when COVID-19 began to impact in this part of the world, there was lots of, um, there was lots of drama and lots of um, predictions that we would turn into the very worst versions of ourselves, that kind of d dystopian, uh, view of the world and humanity and and certainly here talking about volunteers I mean people did extra and are doing but people did extraordinary things and um, for for other people um, and and we didn't murder and 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 rape each other but people people volunteered and they they made bread and they, uh, they listen to the birds. Well, for instance, the toilet paper hoarding, right? <laughs> At first there were reports that toilet paper was running out. And so we all had an image of, you know, certain, you know, selfish people buying hundreds of rolls. Yeah. But it turned out it was just everyone buying a couple of extra rolls. Yeah. You know, there was no dreadful behaviour with the toilet paper hoarding. <laughs> so yes, I quite agree with you, Paul. In fact, I remember I read an article in which somebody asked um, uh, an epidemiologist how they thought pandemic fiction tends to get it wrong. And he said, pandemic fiction tends to, tends to show the social order breaking down overnight, you know, instant savagery. And in fact, people tend to behave extremely well and, yeah. and develop new forms of, of mutual care. So we've certainly been seeing that. There's, there's a huge mm. goodwill. I mean, here, when I go out for walks, you know, I'm skirting six feet around everyone and everybody's nodding and smiling and there's been so much practical help of the more vulnerable. So yeah, I, I wanted to show a novel in which yeah. the flu may be a total horror and the war's going on, but there's also a huge amount mm. of, of sort of selfless service. Mm. And the uh, confinement, so the confinement that you write about in The Pull of the Stars, the confinement that you write about in Room, of course. Um, you've, you, you, you've written and you've researched a lot about confinement and solitude. Um, I'm wondering a little bit about how did it impact on your life and your family's life over the last few months? I, I, I've heard writers and artists say, well, actually, it didn't really impact on me because my life was pretty solitary or but any surprises? How did lockdown treat you all? I've been having a, a very good lockdown. I felt very lucky, but it certainly made me oddly aware that my usual life is too busy. I mean, I'm a very extroverted writer, so I'm writing alone much of the day, but then I love to do things in the evening to see friends and so on. And I have missed all that. And I've definitely missed things like theater and live music. But on the other hand, there has been a, an odd relaxation to it. And I realized I probably was burning the candle at two ends too yeah. much. So, you know, it's not that it's going to transform my life, but um, I certainly have appreciated very much the kind of more relaxed pleasures of, 
say, for instance, this summer we, we bought a big inflated paddling pool for the hot Ontario summer. So, you know, sitting around in the pool, squirting, squirting our kids with yeah. um, water pistols. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to be yeah. said for it. Yeah. You know, low-key yeah. pleasures. You, 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 said, uh, you, you said elsewhere that um, that room was a, a meditation um, on, on safety versus freedom. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of us have been kind of somewhere in the middle of safety and freedom. And, and, and some of that kind of the reflection, the, the kind of existential kind of questions or the value questions that I think, I, I, I don't know if that's been, been, been no, true for you. No, we've all been having thoughts. these questions. Um, you know, every, every household in every nation, they're sitting around saying, okay, hang on, is it, is it worth taking this risk to get a haircut or is it worth risking that I'll do harm to a neighbor by going to talk to her. I remember we wanted to drop off some chocolates at a, a neighbor's on Mother's Day. And so I, you know, I swabbed the box with a Lysol wipe and then I thought she won't know I have. So then I attached a post-it saying, I have Lysoled this box. <laughs> so I was trying to do her some good and not do her harm. Yeah, yeah, um, so yeah. yes, and, and then we're having discussions like, okay, I, at the moment I'm feeling like our, our kids have to go back to school even if it's a risk because I, I would feel terrible about keeping them out of school for longer. Yeah. So there are all these different ways of, of doing harm and benefit and I find parenthood in particular really, that's why I wrote Room because parenthood had really focused my mind on this question of you know safety versus freedom and you have to literally keep the baby from falling off the sofa and yet give the baby lots of stimulus. Yeah. Um, so, so I. Yeah, I think parenthood has been a real gift to me as a writer because it's, it's really um, sharpened my focus on those sort of existential and ethical questions. Um, and in a way which is never fixed, there's no final solution because parenthood is renegotiated yeah. every single day. They're a day older and you're a day tireder. <laughs> and, Even and, during lockdown, I've, yeah. I've become a more relaxed mother because I felt I don't want to be squabbling with them about so many things when, when so many yeah. things are forbidden already. You know, so if yeah. I can say yes during this lockdown, I do because, you know, the pandemic is saying no to them in so many yeah. ways. You, 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 you've described you've described parenting as as probably one of the most important human stories to be told or that we tell you. And you do that. You talk about parenting in a way that strikes me as very unsentimental and um, really, really good on the grey bits. This is, this kind Oh, it's all grey. <laughs> <laughs> you, but you really, I, I think you've really given voice to that, to the, the kind of in-between land, the paradox, the, 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 the ambiguity uh, of parenting, of relationships. In a way, I think the reason parenting has been such a stimulating subject for me is that, um, I, I couldn't always assume that I would get to be a parent. Mm. You know, coming out in Ireland, um, I felt like I was stepping onto the no children route. That's certainly how it seemed in the 80s. Um, so, and I felt that was worth it to me to say, yes, I'm gay. This is my life, even if it means no kids. So then when, after a few years, I began thinking it might be possible to have children, and Chris and I ended up having two of them, and it was very much chosen. And also, when there are two parents of the same of the same gender, you do a lot of kind of thinking about your roles. None of it see, none of it is just a sort of natural. Oh, of course, she will breastfeed and he will cut the grass. You know, you have yeah. to think about all of it. So yeah. I think perhaps coming to parenting um, with a queer perspective allowed me to just see it a little bit um, fresh. 
and realize, you know, it's not that everybody has to parent. It's one very particular way to spend your time, but it's a hugely rich and interesting way. And, and, or, I mean, here's an example. Our, our kids call us by, by our first names. And some people are shocked by this. They think it's disrespectful. But, you know, that, you know, that, that the mammy daddy thing, which I grew up with, yeah. um, you know, we couldn't use those words. So we had to pick other words. And yeah. it, it ended up being our names, Emma and Chris, that the kids use mostly. But that's the kind of thing... Um, that you know you just look at slightly afresh because you 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 had to think about parenting mm. before doing it and and i've heard you say Emmett, that it's probably been a different experience doing that in canada where the law has been on your side it has but i don't like to generalize about canada versus ireland because you know, Ireland has changed so much. There may be ways in which Ireland has jumped ahead of Canada. So I wouldn't want to be comparing, you know, Ireland Turk in 1990 sure. with Canada now. Yeah. But, but let's just say that many of the laws did change earlier in Canada. So by the time we were having kids in 2003, um, we were already able to get, um, you know, uh, Finn's birth cert modified so we were both his legal parents. So we have always mm. felt, um, you know, as it were, safe, getting back to safety versus freedom. We've yeah. always felt protected as a family by, by Canadian law. Yeah. And that certainly made a difference. Because then you just have the ordinary existential terrors of parenting. <laughs> you don't have other ones like, <laughs> yeah. will the government take my babies yeah. away? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the safety versus freedom, um, to, to go back to room and to go back to Jack, um, and, and that, that granting of his, of his freedom, of, 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 of his escape, of, of, of allowing him escape, if you like, um, of letting him go, letting go, letting go of what we, what we love. Um, I mean, I guess as a parent, eh, that's, that, that, that's what you do or have to do, is it? Yeah, I think Room worked and touched so many readers just because it's, a, it's an intensified version of what every parent and every child does. You know, they're, they're always going to grow up and leave you. Just in the case of Room, there's a moment where she has to let it happen all in one go. It's terrifying, but mm -hmm. it is what every parent does when they wave their child off to school or see their, see their child making choices that the parent wouldn't have approved of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, our son is learning to drive at the moment. I'm terrified every time he goes out there, but there's yeah. no way I'm going to stop him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you're also really interested, and I think I can say this as a psychologist, um, it strikes me that you're really interested in resilience, in, in what kind of keeps people afloat, what makes for human happiness. And, and as a psychologist, I can say, Emma, we do a really bad job in focusing on deficits, on what's broken, on what's not working properly. Um, and, and I've certainly appreciated from your work the lens that kind of shifts um, and says, well, what actually are the, the ingredients of, of a happy life? of a meaningful life. Is that something, is that real? Is that, can you say something yes, about that? I would say there are two reasons for that. I'm, I'm, I'm very cheerful myself. So I, I, I wouldn't be likely to write stories that are entirely grim. They're often very grim in their setup, very morbid, very macabre, but, but they tend to lead towards the light in some way. But it's also a literary reason. Um, your reader has to have some reason to read your book. So there has to be there's kind of a bargain there. And I don't mean that I owe them sweetness and apple pie. Mm. Um, sometimes there will be tragic endings, but there still has to be a feeling that the story is meaningful, you know, that it's not just a random, you know, mess and chaos of a short and brutish existence. So I'm very careful when I tell dark stories to give the reader enough uplift or, or to give them, you know, moments of escape. For instance, in The Pull of the Stars, 
you know, you're, you're jammed into that tiny little ward for three days. And so I put in one scene where they go up on the roof of the hospital and they, they have a little picnic up there and eat an orange, you know, because we all, as readers, need some respite. Mm. So, yeah, I'm mm. very interested in, mm. in, in those aspects. Mm. But sadly, mm. it's very hard to make a good story out of plain ordinary happiness. You know? <laughs> My own life, for instance, really doesn't provide me with well, much in the way of narrative. You know, moves to Canada is extremely happy for the next quarter of a century. Well, <laughs> two know, lovely I, kids. I, yeah, because because <laughs> you're... Stay there. You, you, I mean, your early, your early life, so... Um, you, you spent the first 20 years of your life in, in Dublin. Um, you, eight years in England doing eight, PhD. Eight years and 20-something in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm very lucky I've emigrated twice. Emigration is a wonderful yeah. um, experience for a writer. You know, it's a, it's a slight defamiliarization device that makes you look at your own culture yeah. outside. You're going... Other people don't necessarily like tato crisps, you know, <laughs> don't all taste the same way. Yeah. Um, you look at the, the new culture very much as an outsider as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it gives you that, that little, little arm's length perspective that I think is yeah. crucial yeah. to write. And, and I mean, you, you, you were one of eight children. You were the youngest of eight children. Yes, the favourite, spoiled yeah. one of eight. Yeah. Yes. Your, your parents were academics and actually, um, I'm sitting in Newman House on St. Stephen's Green, and I think I understand that your family had a little interlude when they lived here. D did you live here? That's right. Sometime in the 60s, before I was born, um, I think, I think the, the first six of the kids and um, parents um, stayed in a flat upstairs from you for a couple of months. Wow. Yeah, because my father, Dennis Donoghue, at the time was, um, you know, UCD, UCD. professor. Um, yeah. can't remember his job title yeah. in the English department he was yeah. Um, and yeah we were sort of lent a bit of Newman House to live in <laughs> so I always um, I used to look up at the building whenever I'd pass Stephen's Green I'd look up and kind of go oh yeah, we yeah, lived yeah. there wow, oh, what fun yeah. um, and you know I'm very fond of UCD in all sorts of ways I really grew up on the Belfield campus we lived right beside it um, in the 70s and I would go through that hole in the fence and, and explore those woods and write Wordsworthian poetry all inspired by the trees of UCD. Yeah. My home, it's my home place yeah. in so many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you described yourself as growing up, you were, you were a straight A student, um, but you weren't straight. And at, at about 14, I think you realised that you were gay, that you were lesbian. And I mean, that was in an Ireland, a 1980, 1980s Ireland. It would have been, yeah, 80, 83, 84, yeah, yeah. Not, not an ideal setting for it to happen. Wow. I, but, you know, to a writer, it was a gift because you need something to sort of shake you out of that feeling of, I'm normal, everything's normal, everybody's normal. You know, you need to be, you need to be jolted. Um, so, so I think it's very good to, to, to come across one way in which you are, the other, you are the abject, you are the despised, you are the bogeyman, you know, and because then it gives you an intense kind of sympathy with everyone else who's treated like dirt um, in one way or another by their yeah. culture. So you, I think it was, you know, I think realizing I was gay and then parenthood have been, have been the two great formative experiences for me that, that are behind all my books. And, and I mean, realizing that you were gay in a culture, in a 1980s Catholic culture, where you felt like you, you were marginalized, you were outcast, you were very othered. Um, 
was it was it that that you kind of wrote against because because I, I I guess that you are from your reading that actually your um your family life um unlike a lot of Irish writers uh, was 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 quite quite happy there wasn't a lot of trauma I was very happy and yeah. nurturing and literary but yeah. but I have to say you know realizing that I, I was falling for a girl it, it it did sort of provoke me into writing because I suddenly had a secret um I was you know it's not so much that I actually was cast out, it's more I felt if anybody knew I would be cast out. So it's very paradoxical to feel you're this high status, straight A, you know, running the debating society, you know, doing plays with, with, with schools. And all this is, is fine as long as nobody knows your dreadful, filthy secret. So, so that was an odd experience, yes. I remember, say, when the first Channel 4 broadcasts were happening in Ireland and there was a a program in which young lesbians spoke direct to camera. And I remember watching this surreptitiously while my parents were out thinking, oh my God, there are others out there. There were others out there. It feels as if they, they were outside of Ireland. Yeah. So you can imagine with what excitement I've seen the changes in Ireland in recent years. Oh. And you know, when the, when the marriage referendum went through, for instance, I was so yeah, moved. I, uh, yeah. You, you know that piece, that some, and I, I don't know who says it, but to understand a human being, um, we, we need to know what was going on in, their, in the world when they were teenagers. So there isn't much between you and I, um, but growing up in Ireland in, in, as a teenager, there were two things that, that, that I remember vividly. They were the, the AIDS epidemic, that the horror and the, the fear and the propaganda that, that was just what, what was everywhere. And Emma, we were growing up in a country where homosexuality was criminalised. You, you know, we decriminalised in, in 1993. You were 20, you were 20 something. So criminalised um, and, and an epidemic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder, I, I think gay men probably felt that more. Mm -hmm. Whereas as a lesbian, of course, I was very aware of those two things, but it was mostly just the absolute silence, just the you know the invisibility of irish lesbians that i felt more but i was very aware sort of through my through gay male friends of of the sort of you know the bigger shadows and i remember going on um, pride march in 93 to celebrate decriminalization and just thinking this is extraordinary they've actually you know changed a law that has an immediate effect on our lives and yeah. you know we changed it yeah. um so so yeah. so yeah that's probably the best sort of political demo or celebration i've ever been on was that one really yeah Go all at once from criminalisation to yeah. to anti-discrimination laws. Yeah, like, and and it's, uh, say a little bit more about the about the silence. You know the 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 the, the things that weren't talked about. Your identity. You say a little bit more about that. I remember, for instance, in our in our secondary school, um, you know, we, we talked about everything. We had debates, even about issues that were quite taboo, like abortion. But they, they were taboo, but could, you know, they were morally taboo, but they could be discussed loud and clear. But they just didn't mention homosexuality at all. I think one Irish teacher, in in our sixth year, wanted to suggest this might possibly be a way of interpreting a short story but he couldn't say it out loud. We all got confused, and then he was like, "Never mind, never mind." So it was just the unspeakable. And um, it, it was one of those things you knew was evil, but you had never been explicitly told. It's, it's amazing how society can clearly communicate things without saying them out loud. Oh, isn't it? Yeah. And I remember the first few lesbian books I came across in books upstairs in, in Dublin, just, mm -hmm. you know, buying them immediately, but, but surreptitiously, you know, feeling like, oh, will they judge me as, yeah. they, as, they, as they ring through my money? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So that, that desperate sense of need, um, you know, I look back and it feels like an absolutely transformed world yeah. that I live in. And, and Emma, was it, was it different at home? I mean, was, there, was conversation different at home? Was, was there a different kind of silence at home? It was, was very good, but again, you know, the gay thing just didn't come up, didn't come up. Right. And I, was, I had a lot to lose in that I was this approved of young woman. I wasn't a rebel. I was seen as very good. I was not, you know, wasting any time with boyfriends or getting into any trouble with boyfriends or anything. So to feel that really I was the, this, this person that they would despise if only they knew. Um, and that's yeah. why of, of my many lovely memories of my mother who died a couple of years ago, one of my very favorite memories is when I finally at the age of 21, when I had moved to England, so I was safely away from home, so on a Christmas visit home, I, I decided I was going to come out to her and I was so scared of it. I had to delay my flight by a week to, to give me more time. And then I finally did it, sitting in the car park, staring at the garage. I finally told her and she told me she had guessed when I was 16 and that I was still her little baby. <laughs> I'm still moved by that, Paul. You know, to feel that, to be all those years of your teens, afraid that people are going to hate you and then have your mother look at you with such love, you know? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I don't know. I don't know about you, Emma, but I think that that legacy of those years lived in fear, a fear that actually people might hate us. Um, it's very formative, isn't it? It, 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 it transforms how we are in the world in many ways. In many ways. I, so, 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 so not to suggest that it's, um, it's, it, oh, it's a wonderful thing, but I've seen incredible things come from that, from that, that pain and that isolation and awful things too. Maybe it makes us choosy about who we fill our lives with because, you know, we don't ever want to feel like that again. So we seek out the ones who we know from the start are going to are going to treasure us <laughs> one way it would take you. Or certainly as a parent, I feel I never want my kids to be in any doubt about whether I would, you know, be angry with them or punish them. Um, um, yeah. I, 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 I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself here, but it feels like I'd like to ask you about this now. I, I think sometimes in your work, I've kind of seen it as a little bit of a Trojan horse that you, um, you write in a way that invites people into, into different worlds that they mightn't necessarily find themselves in. You, you write in a way that, um, if, I say, if I can say it very bluntly, um, I think nurtures a, a, a kindness, nurtures a, a kindness. It's very, that's very nicely put, Paul. Um, I'm certainly aware that I use certain things like, say, humour as a kind of a lubricant to bring in subjects that might make the reader tense otherwise. Um, I've written a couple of books for children about a big family where a gay couple and a lesbian couple have lots of kids together. And I'm really aware that I bring in all sorts of touchy and tense issues, but the humor lets it all slide down. And with some of my other novels, I, I delay information. Yeah, like in several of my novels, for instance, the, 
by the end of the novel, there's a same-sex love story, but that's not that's not what I lead with on page one. So I suppose mm. I am aware of getting to kind of lead or lure the reader sometimes mm, mm, into mm. into a story that they didn't know they were going to care mm. about. You you you've said on on more than one occasion, and it's something that's really stayed with me. You've said that um, fiction is a is a technology um, to create empathy or to, to, to nurture empathy. I, 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 tell me more about that. I, I, I was intrigued by that. You know, I don't even just mean its effects on the readers. I'm, I'm aware as a writer that if I make a commitment to telling a story from the point of view of character A, I'm going to see it from their point of view, even if they're the baddie, for instance. Um, you know, the, the process of, of, of you know, sentence by sentence saying what's going through the mind of character A, you're with them. Um, so so it's, it's very powerful, even in its effects on me. And similarly, the reader is, 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 you know, sucked into the mind of that person and will see things as mm. they do. So, for instance, I once wrote a short story about um, uh, rape as a war, war crime in the American War of Independence. There was an awful episode where the, um, where the, the British troops, who were actually German mercenaries, um, they were stationed in New Jersey and they, they raped the local girls en masse. So I wrote a short story, but from the point of view of a sort of, uh, I think, 15-year-old you know, child soldier who'd been kind of you know, indentured into this, never chose to be a soldier and ends up you know, committing rape along with his peers. And it's, it's very dangerous um, to, to write a story that's, that's sympathetic to the rapist. But in this case, I was really interested in weighing the kind of different traumas of being this child soldier finds himself in this appalling situation and his victims. So I didn't want you to do the obvious thing and just write a story about his victim saying, oh, look, he's bad. He's the evil soldier. She's the victim. I want to do something more subtle. But I was aware that if I got it wrong, it would seem to be a story absolutely sympathizing with uh, rapist soldiers. So, so that's, I suppose, what I mean about it being quite a dangerous technology of empathy in that its effects mm. are so powerful. Mm. And, you know, reading novels changes people's opinion at a deep down level that no amount of rational argument will do. Yeah, no, no amount of, of lecturing, no amount of wonderfully crafted uh, opinion pieces. Um, fiction um, has a way in, I think, to, to the human heart and soul that kind of bypasses our defense systems in some way. I, I think, do you? Yeah. I do. I mean, you know, the, the parallel that's, that's coming to my mind is, you know, all these, all these cell phone videos of, of, that, are, that are being passed around by the Black Lives Matter movement. It's, they're literally letting the rest of us see yeah. what it is like to have a policeman walk up to you threateningly, demand things, you know, hector you, yeah. accuse you of holding a weapon when you're just holding, say, a, 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 yeah. a, a rubbish picking up clamp. Um, it, it literally puts you on the body of the of the person of color who is being um, harassed by police, and you know that one. That one, I think, has has changed minds away in 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 a way that no no medium less um, visceral would yeah. have done. I think yeah. you needed to literally see what it's like to have the the, the brutal police officer walk towards you. Yeah, you 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 said earlier on Emma, about how. I mean, the dramatic changes that have taken, social changes that have taken place in Ireland over the last 30 years. Um, I mean, an Ireland that in some ways is unrecognisable. 
And I was thinking about that this morning and thinking about how those changes came about, or they were won, hard won, on the back of people's personal stories. So people told stories about being gay, being lesbian, being transgendered, about having abortions. People told stories about being divorced in relationships that were abusive. People, people, very brave people told very delicate stories that, that really changed hearts and mind uh, and, and brought about, I believe, the change that you're seeing now. And, and, and you're right, and I think that's, that's particularly true for Ireland. I think in other countries you see often a much more explicit kind of civil rights campaigning. Um, and in, in Ireland, maybe because it's such a small country, what I think of as having really changed people is, uh, pe you know, people ringing up the radio and um, telling their mm. story or going on the late late. Just that willingness to expose yourself and to show that you are a human being, mm. I think, has been um, transformative in mm. Ireland. Mm. Um, and often I think it means people, people then end up with a, a, a sort of more empathetic understanding rather than just saying, yeah, OK, fine, we have to extend those civil rights. Yeah. You know, if you've, if you've literally seen and talked to, yeah. for instance, the whole generation of, of um, people I'm seeing on social media now who are like, yeah, I'm Irish and yeah, I'm Nigerian as well. Or, you know, yeah. mine isn't the face that you think of as Irish, but this is what Irish looks like now. Yeah. I mm -hmm. think they, they humanize it. So it's not an abstract concept, you know, multicultural Ireland, but they're, they're making it vivid. They're putting a face to it. Yeah, a, ver a very powerful face that really... As I say, I, I, I think it, um, it kind of bypasses, it can bypass a lot of our, a lot of our defences and is, is, as we say, is, is more powerful than, um, than, than many other ways of doing that. One, one of the, um, may, maybe just to go back ever so slightly, in, in um, the, the wonderful story about the fasting girls, the, uh, the wonder, um, so, so these girls um, across different parts of the world, uh, um, uh, historically, uh, who were fasting um, and um, subject to a form of Catholicism that um, really was um, disembodied, that was kind of dismembered, that saw the body as something that was going to be your ruin. And that idea of women the good woman doesn't have an appetite. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny if they're, if they're doing this, you know, self-starvation in the year 1700, they're not specifically talking about looking skinny and glamorous, right? But they are talking about being pure, you know, yeah. not needing food, being above the body. So this, this kind of ascetic idea of, of the good woman is, is weirdly trans-historical and trans-cultural. And just after I'd published The Wonder, which was very much focused on, you know, the, the Catholic storyline of a fasting girl. There was a girl in India who died after a, a, a fast of several weeks, and she was of the Jain religion. So um, it's not just Catholicism, sure. but as yeah. I was saying before, if you're going to be highly critical, you should probably uh, yeah. stick to your own tradition. Yeah, 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 and yeah. I was really interested in all Catholicism had to offer, frankly, that, it, you know, I, I try and show it as this very um, uplifting religion for the poor, you know, that they, they got to say, we are just as important as the kings and queens. You know, mm. the most humble little peasant girl mm. can be a saint. And so I'm, I'm trying to show that it, it, it offered huge amount of, of support and uplift mm. and solidarity mm. to the poor. But perhaps 
some of its some of its costs were that it it asked them to be pure and self-denying and it asked those who'd already lost so much yeah, to, yeah. to give up more you know and contribute more to the building of a church yeah. um, and to be more obedient did you so so yes i wanted to sort of explore the extremes of that by looking at a little girl who decides that you know god doesn't want her to eat yeah emma it's a form of a form of, of catholicism and in in other organized religions um, and without being too dramatic about it did it did you get some of that? Did, did some of that kind of thinking impact on, on you as a Catholic Irish woman? Not really. I mean, I, I remember moments of, say, you know, every Lent we, we would give up sweets. And there was this odd code that if somebody offered you a sweet or a piece of chocolate during Lent, you could take it home and tuck it behind your holy pictures and save it for Easter. So you know, I got this grotty little collection of individual sticks of barley sugar and squares of Cadbury's behind my picture of St. Teresa. And of course, I'd, I'd obsess over it. You know, every night I'd check out my stash and look forward to Easter. So I don't think it did the intended um, thing, which was to keep my mind off sweets. <laughs> but there was, let's just say there were kind of cultural fossils. I would say I was not in the 70s raised on a kind of a hardcore old school Catholicism at all. And um, there was an awful lot of um, post-Vatican II, you know, mildness and talking about togetherness and love and so on. So, um, no, the Catholicism mm. I was critiquing in The Wonder is an older Catholicism, okay. but it's, it's the roots of our culture. Sure. Um, and even the, the Irish habit of when you're first offered something, you say no, you know, the kind of, ah, no, ah, no, thanks. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You have to be pressed to have yeah. the cup of tea and the scone. Um, so it's in interesting that there are these little lingering echoes of that self-denying attitude. Mm, mm. All of those, all of those influence, those pieces that influence, that 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 shape and form us, and and of course, as you say, in 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 various parts of the world, um, I mean, I I don't think that we can have this conversation without talking about George Floyd, without talking about Black Lives Matter, without talking about our own versions of that. In, in Ireland, with a, a direct provision system that's been in place for, for, for far, far too long in, in Canada, for First Nations people. Um, I, I, I'm curious, because for you as a, a historical fiction writer, in, in part, and, um, where are you on, on the statues, on the removing, removing of statues of Confederate people, um, um, on colonizers. What, what are your thoughts? What do we do about that? I have to say, when I, when I saw that statue of, of, of the, the slave trader in Bristol toppled into the water, I found that a glorious moment. Of course, I'm not suggesting some kind of wholesale removal of all statues of everyone who wasn't woke, you know, but I don't think anybody is suggesting that. Um, but I certainly don't feel that it's, a, it's an anti-history impulse because you know, history is made of these moments as well as being made of statues. So for me, it depends on the statue. Um, we were discussing recently, um, us and our kids, and um, there's a street in town named for somebody who had, who held, um, you know, slave plantations. And they were discussing, you know, should that street name be changed? And we were talking about how it'll cost a lot of money to change it and like maybe use that money for something a bit more concrete. 
So um, I notice a lot of people of color on, on social media have been saying, okay, could, could, could you white people stop obsessing over the, the, the surfaces and actually focus on substantial stuff to do with funding of schools and equal access to healthcare and so on. So let's not get too caught up in the symbolic battles. But of course, they can matter too. So, so yeah, I don't mind if a few statues come down. And you've, you've, and you've been drawn, you've been drawn in your work to some of those difficult, difficult historical um, issues, points, those, those, those sources that that you've been drawn to. That in in some ways, I, I think, kind of get at the best of humanity and at the worst of humanity. Um, you, can you say something about that, or, or is that the case? I think a key moment for me was uh, my first two novels were, you know, lesbian-themed novels set in Dublin, and then I did a book of fairy tales. And but then my first historical novel, um, I I was writing about a, a servant girl who commits a murder, but I, I ended up inventing a character of a slave in that book because I was I was appalled to realize that in 18th century Britain there were slaves. We always sort of blame mm. the Americans mm. for that. So that's the first time I started being sort of explicitly revisionist and trying to write things into the the the, the record of the past which have been left out. And so I would say that my, my interest in sort of women's history and and queer lives has naturally led me to to writing a lot about um, slavery and the history of black lives as well. Um, because as soon as like that moment I was talking about when you're 14 and you realize that you are the other in some way, that should open your mind to all the ways that people are treated as the other. It should give you a huge and, and um, committed interest in the lives of others. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, you have to be aware that you're not always the best person to tell the story. Um, there's been a lot of you know, rethinking of, of, of writers taking on subject matter that doesn't belong to their ancestors and to what extent you're allowed to do that. And, you know, how much does it matter how you do it? Um, so mm. this is not an easy question, but I would say my writing ever since about my third book has, has kind of, you know, reached out its hands to um, histories other than my own mm. um, because, because there are such natural um, echoes and connections mm. there. I mean, you, you, you started to write, I, th I think you said you started to write when you were eight. You wrote, um, you wrote a poem. Uh, and your first love was was poetry. Um, you've been writing since. Uh, you've had the same. You're 50 now, uh, and you've had the same agent for for more than 25 years, which I I, I think is incredible. It's great. It's like she's she's a mother figure. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you bring her everything. You know, your yeah. your books which are not going to ever get written. Maybe your bad ideas. Your your yeah. books which will be a very obscure scholarly interest, and then your bestsellers. Um, and, and she sort of uh, welcomes them all. So I found it a very nurturing relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, and has, the, has the reason that you write, has the reason changed over the sweep of your writing life? No, I, I fundamentally enjoy it. Um, mm. I just, I, I get a thrill out of making stuff up. Um, and <laughs> um, I mean, I like some, some parts of it more than others. You know, the beginning is very much like falling in love. So I'm often being wooed away by new ideas. Sometimes it's more of a slog to follow through on the older ideas. But, but no, I, I fundamentally um, find it the most enjoyable way I could spend my days. So mm. um, even if I might sometimes have additional motives, like, you know, I wish to change the world or something, that's not the primary motive. Right. And there are, more, there are more direct ways of changing the world 
Um, so, so no, if you choose to do it through affection, it's, it's, it's probably because you just fundamentally love this particular form of mm. magic trick. I, I think, Emma, I speak, I, speak for, um, I speak for quite a few people when I say this. I'm very conscious of my colleagues in UCD and equality, diversity and inclusion um, and, 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 and so many other people. But you're writing, uh, you, 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 you write in the outliers. It's, it's almost as though you've put, you, you kind of put your arms around the, the waifs and the strays and the abnormals. Um, you, you're, you're speaking some of, I think you're speaking some of that unspoken, that silence maybe that you, that you experienced as a teenager. Um, and that, that really is a, is, is a very precious gift. Thank you so much. We, you know, what I do, it's, it's partly because their stories are more interesting. You know, and you could say I'm <laughs> unscrupulously looking for the best stories wherever I'll find them. And oh. in, in the stories that our society has left out, there will be more surprise, there will be more that's unpredictable. Um, so it's, it's I'm, I'm always following my pleasure. I'm never putting someone into a book out of feeling of like duty, must, right. must be good to them by including them. No, mm -hmm, it's much mm -hmm, more like, mm -hmm. wow, that's a story mm -hmm. I've never heard before. Emma, it's been a real pleasure. Um, from, from the team here in, in Mali, from the team in UCD, in equality, diversity and inclusion, uh, just a heartfelt thanks. You're, you're, you're our first guest on, on this project, past, present and pride project, and uh, it couldn't have been better. So a deep, deep heartfelt thanks and appreciation. Same to you. Thank you all of you for making this happen. Take good care. Bye-bye. For me, literature, for me, writers, for me, the, the, the arts, in, in some ways, um, capture, capture what's often um, missed in conversation, what's often missed um, um, historically when it comes to the lives of people, um, who for various reasons in, in this country and beyond, don't experience an equal world, uh, a world that is accommodating, is embracing of diversity, and certainly a world that isn't inclusive. So uh, I, I, I feel the arts uh, and, and literature play a very, very central and important role in, in, in advocating for um, a more equal, a more just, a more diverse and inclusive society. been listening to a podcast from Radio Molly, which broadcasts from Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. If you've enjoyed this programme, do consider becoming a Molly member or giving membership to a friend. It's the best way to support the museum and its programming. Visit molly.ie forward slash membership to find out more. Thank you for listening.